who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast hosted by me, Anne Foster. I want to give a special welcome to all of the new listeners. I mean, and a special welcome to all of the the aged, older listeners. Everybody, but it's just, I think there are, well, I know there's a whole lot of people who are listening to this who have, this is maybe your first like real-time episode of Vulgar History. There's been a number of people catching up, binge listening. I'm not sure why, but thank you for being here. And this is a super special episode. So I like to do the podcast in seasons, thematic seasons, because that's just kind of how my brain works. And it's just more manageable for me to, you know, put out a, a season, then like take a break, do some other stuff, come back, etc. But here's the thing. Uh, COVID is still being a little bitch. Delta is out there. Um, and, and I just felt like I needed to, to bring some tits out energy into the world. So that's one reason I'm doing this. The other reason is that I became very interested in a woman who I had never heard of before and whose story, the more I read about it, the more excited I got about it. If you've been following my Instagram stories, you'll know who I'm talking about. It is Fredegund, the queen of Neustria. So this is a story that takes place in the 6th century, basically France, the Frankish kingdoms. And it's an era in which, of which I knew nothing. I didn't know anything about 6th century Frankish kingdoms. But Fredegund's story is so fascinating and so interesting, I had to do a podcast about it. 
And honestly, there's enough stuff here. I feel like this is like her own season. It's just Fredegund is a season unto herself. And I mean to shout out my Instagram friend, Egg, who is the one who suggested Fredegund to me just a casually a few weeks back. I just post on Instagram like, hey, what are some like interesting women from history who you think would be interesting on the podcast? And I got a lot of really interesting answers and suggestions, and I've been like reading up on various people, but Egg just sent in just a single word, Fredigand, all in caps. And I was like, well, who's this? And then a quick Google search and a skim over her like criminally short Wikipedia later, and I'm just like, I'm all in on Fredigand. And then I asked Egg where where had they heard of Fredigand? Because she is not a well-known person right um at least not yet and egg says i remember my grandmother was a big stan of her so i used to hear the stories i mean shout out to egg's grandmother and i wonder where she heard about it anyway egg's grandmother says i was always like it's okay if your husband dies if you're rich and then just research from there is how egg became a stan and i became a stan of fredigand just because She's everything. She's everything I've ever wanted in a historical woman's story. It's just everything. Like usually in these stories, it's like when I can even find enough as much information as I want, there's always this part in the middle where it's like, and then she went off and had, you know, six children. And the next time we hear her in the public record, it's because she did a murder or whatever. But Fredigand, it's unrelenting. You know what she's up to every year of her life from when it first gets exciting. So that's like 40 years of stuff. And here's the big news. So I was researching Fredigan, and it's just like, so there's a couple of books. Like, frankly, I just looked at the Wikipedia. I'm like, where did, what were their sources? So then I looked up those books. So they were um, Doomed Queens, Royal Women Who Met Bad Ends by Chris Waldhair. Uh, Women Rulers Throughout the Ages, an illustrated guide by G- Guida M. Jackson. Um, Absolute Power, The Real Lives of Europe's Most Infamous Rulers by C.S. Denton. And here's the thing. All those books are cute. They're all good. I got my hands on them. And they all have all the same information. And the thing is that that's because there's one main source of information about Fredegan's life. And that is the writings of a bishop called Gregory of Tours. And in a nice um, difference from how this often goes, Gregor of Tours actually lived at the same time as Fredigand. In fact, Fredigand outlived him. So we're getting like real-time information. And that's kind of it. That's like, that's the source. So these books and the Wikipedia article, I looked at uh, biographyyourdictionary.com. And I'm like, okay, this is some stuff, but I need a deeper dive. I need to know more about Ms. Fredigand. And then... I discovered that there's a book coming out soon, so in February 2022, by Shelley Puhak, who also has an article online I think you can find about Fredigand. But um, her book is called The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World, by Shelley Puhak, The Dark Queens. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, obviously. And so I was just like, I need to get my hands on this book. Like, it's coming in February. I'm sure it's, you know, it's done. They're just waiting to print it. And I managed to get an early advanced reader copy of it. And I just like devoured this book. So I have got so much information about Fred again. It's like every piece of information I could have possibly wanted is all in this book. And 
but the thing about doing the research is it's like so far outside of anything I've ever read about like again like 6th century Frankish kingdoms like it took a lot of um I could read like a chapter or two and I'm just like this is it like my brain can't handle any more information it's like all new information and so between just how much stuff there is to tell you about and just kind of how much brain power it takes like this is going to be a two-part episode so this is part one of two of the story of Fredigand. And so, uh, here we go. So, this story takes place in the 6th century, a.k.a. the 500s um, AD, during the end of the Merovingian Frankish dynasty era. So, Frankish, the Franks, you might have heard of them. Their lands are now called France, mostly. So the Merovingians, I mean, that's just a dynasty. That's just like the family who were in power at the time. So this is all in modern day France. Um, just to place this amongst other stories we've talked about on this podcast, this all happened like 300 years before Ethelfled um, and 500 years later than Boudicca and Cleopatra. So like we're in... It's the medieval world, but it's like the early medieval world. Like, 300 years before Ethel fled. Like, that's where we are. So, the Franks were a group of Germanic people. So, their name was first mentioned in... This is just a lot of kind of place setting that I needed. And so, I'm going to assume it'll help you too. Just to really understand what this world is we're looking at. Uh, so, the Franks, group of Germanic peoples, whose name was first mentioned in a 3rd century Roman source, um, and they were associated with tribes between the Lower Rhine and the Ems River on the edge of the Roman Empire. The Franks, this is very crucial, you don't even know how crucial this is, they wore their hair long, and there's going to be several instances in this story where somebody gets in trouble, like a man, and then to shame him they cut off his long hair like the hair was like majorly important to them they also wore big fluffy mustaches the romans had never seen mustaches before and so in translation they referred to, like they'd never seen mustaches like romans i feel like they might have had beards but they're like why would you just have the top part of the hair and not the bottom of the beard like what is this so it was described, the Romans described mustaches as locks of nose hair arranged with the comb. So these are just some long hair mustache having Germanic people. And they, well, they clashed against the Romans. Sometimes they sided with the Romans. Um, so in the 450s, so like 100-ish years before this story happens, uh, there was a man called Childeric I. And side note, the names in this are names I've, with a couple exceptions, like Justin, names I've never encountered, like letters arranged in a way I've never seen. So I'm going to pronounce them like I assume they're pronounced based on my understanding of letters. But um, unlike when I'm looking at other languages that exist now, like I feel like there's not I would love it if there's someone out there listening to this who is like an expert in 6th century Frankish um, language, but assuming not, just know I'm doing my best. 
So Childeric I was a Frankish guy, nose hair, long hair, one of several military leaders commanding Roman forces. So he was working with the Romans at this point. Um, he and his son Clovis I faced competition from a Roman guy called Aegidius. Um, basically to become the king of the Franks. So just like who would be in charge of the Franks. So the Merovingians, Childeric is part of the Merovingians. His son Clovis I is as well. So they had succeeded in conquering most of what's called Gaul, which didn't research this one word. Please forgive me. But that's like, you know, asterisk and obelisk. So they had succeeded in conquering most of Gaul. So I guess Gaul is like what the Frankish kingdoms were called before. They're taken over by the Merovingian Franks. So the Merovingians took over most of Gaul in the 6th century, as well as established leadership over all of the Frankish kingdoms. Uh, they sort of took over from the Romans because at this point the Roman Empire was like not doing great, but they had, the Romans had left behind lots of architecture and aqueducts, you know, they had like plumbing and whatever. So the Merovingian Franks took over and they're like, we're just gonna, this is great. We're just gonna move into this existing cute little Roman architecture. The, these Franks, the Merovingians, uh, they considered themselves the heir the heirs to the Roman Empire and aspired to be as cultured and cool and elegant as them. So they really, um, when they wanted to be like fancy about it, they would like throw a Roman themed party or they were like dressed like the Romans. Like they spoke in Latin sometimes. They were just like, they thought the Romans were really cool. So, but the Merovingian Frankish dynasty, what was their deal? Well, they were known for their frequent kidnappings, brawls, assassinations, and wars. And why did that happen so much with them? It's because they had this wild rule. So they had no established line of succession. So there's primogeniture. It's that concept where like the oldest person, usually the oldest boy, inherits everything, takes over, becomes the next king. The Merovingians were like not into that. So what kept happening or what happens three times in the story um, is that the king dies and then he gives each of his sons some territory. And then the sons fight each other till the death, till there's only one of them left. And then when he dies, he divides the territory among his sons. And then they all fight to the death until one of them dies. So it's a lot of interfamilial um, wars going on among this squad. So unlike the Roman, let me see. So, oh yes, women in this era. So Roman empresses before them, um, and then also the medieval queens who followed were often coronated in their own right. Like they became queens, not just like wife of the guy, but with the Merovingians, they were just wife of the guy. So they were only queens as long as the marriage lasted. And divorces, annulments, and convenient deaths were not uncommon. What kept happening too is that a guy would get tired of his wife um and he would just be like and our marriage is done and i'm just gonna send you to a convent and then they're just like stuck in a convent that happens numerous times in this story as well so women were specifically barred from inheriting the throne as well so they kind of they could be the wife of the guy they could be the mother of the guy but and that also complicated thing is because where it's like all the sons get land the daughters don't get land and then 
as you'll see in the story as well. I don't know. I'm just like really getting you ready for for the juicy stuff. But maybe I'm just trying to let you know this isn't just going to be me explaining dynastic law forever. The daughters tend to die a lot less than the sons. And if they just let the daughters inherit, there would have been a lot less wars. That's my hot take. So fast forward to 561 and Clothar I, king of the Franks, died and his sons split the empire. Well, he said in his will or whatever, I want the kingdom to be the empire to be divided into four separate kingdoms. And so each son got one of the kingdoms. The sons were, and this is like, we're getting into the story, Cheribert, Guntram, Chilperic, and Sigibert. So Sigibert quickly saw an opportunity to set himself apart from and above his brothers. So he observed that his brothers were taking wives who were, quote, completely unworthy of them and were so far degrading themselves as to even marry their own servants. That's a quote from Gregory of Tours, our main um, chronicler of this whole situation. So Sigebert said that because, so two of his brothers, Guntram and Cheribert, both had many low-born mistresses, but then the issue why he was speaking out about it was that the the third brother, Chilperic, was had taken as his mistress a one of his household servants, um, and they weren't servants who were paid, so basically an enslaved person, and Chilperic, oh my god, I'm so excited, I almost tipped over the microphone, because guess who's making your entrance is Ms. Fredigand. So, how did she, she was a household servant of the unpaid kind, and next thing you know, the she's sort of a little exacerbating the tensions between these brothers, because Chilperic was head over heels in love with her. So who is this person? So obviously we know incredibly little about Fredegan's early years because of the era, um, but also because she was enslaved and poor and a woman, and so nobody wrote a... Like, why would... It's still like, well, that's just another girl who was, like, captured from some tribe or whatever... Like, no one knew who she was going to become. So we don't know about her early years. She's likely born around the year 530. Potentially, likely, she was born into a tribe of people who were taken over by the Franks. And because that's where a lot of these unpaid servants came from. So she was potentially born into maybe a pagan Celtic culture. But who's to say? We do know that she had, like, red gold hair. Not unlike the color of hair I have, um, which makes me feel like the Celtic thing maybe is true. So, and so she started her, her time working in the palace, presumably as a young woman. Uh, so she started off working in the kitchens, um, and then she became, she elevated herself. So presumably she was like interesting and cool enough that she caught the attention of the queen, Queen Otto Vera, who is Chilperic's wife. And so she became a helper to her. And this kind of reminds me of the trajectory of Emma Stone in the movie The Favorite, where she just kind of like works her way up by being especially charming. And so while working as a servant slash slave, Fredegund won Chilperic's affection and became his concubine. 
So, here we go. While Merovingian kings were certainly not given to lifelong devotion to one woman, some scholars believe they practiced serial monogamy. Like, once married, they took only concubines, not second or third wives, and they divorced one wife before acquiring the next. Um, others believe they enjoyed the polygamy customarily practiced by Frankish kings. But chill Peric, like, basically Fred again was like, if you're going to be with me, that's it. You can't be with anyone else as well. So he was wowed by her, obviously. Um, and so she also became very influential over him. So she, he came to like her more than his own wife. This is where the brothers are like, what are, what are you doing with this like household servant person? So Otto Vera, the queen, had had three sons with the king. Um, let's see. So Otto Vera also is a queen. She could have been able to acquire political authority independent of her husband being the king, and she had plenty of time to organize followers who could have opposed her political eclipse by Fredegund, but she was basically, once Fredegund sets her sights against you, like you, that's it. Like this is, you will see this over and over, but this is an early example of it. So basically what happened is that um, she convinced Chilperic to divorce Autovira and to banish her to a convent and that is what happened so his wife Autovira was just like I'm tired of being your husband goodbye and off to the convent she went is she gonna show up again in this story in a scheming way yes she is um is she gonna be out for revenge against Fredegund she will be there's a lot of very cool women in this story so anyway so he got rid of Autovira but then, rather than marry Fredegund, this happened. So, Sigebert, one of the other brothers. Um, and again, like, the story begins with these four brothers who just, like, all of them are just... It's like a Hunger Games, colon, brothers version, colon, Merovingian dynasty era, where they all just wanted to take over the brothers' kingdoms and have there only be one kingdom. So, Sigebert... Sigebert... So he wanted to legitimize his reign through a marriage alliance. And so he asked for the hand in marriage of a woman called Brunhilda. Now, Brunhilda was the daughter of King Athanagild, who was from the Visigoths, which are like people who lived in modern day Spain. Brunhilda had grown up in Toledo, Toledo, in modern day Spain which is where the Visigoths were. She was an elegant, well-educated princess and came with a considerable dowry and also this like very useful alliance with the Visigoths. So Sigebert married Brunhilde in 567. And this was like a major slap in the face to the other brothers because they had mostly married and taken as concubines lower class women. So Sigebert was just like, noticed the other brothers weren't doing dynastic marriages. And he was like, well, that will give me a step ahead and like, Good for him. Good idea. So Sigebert marrying a princess from another kingdom made it obvious he had, he had aspirations to expand his territory. And the only place to expand his territory into was taking over his brother's territory. So this same year, the eldest brother, Cheribert, was excommunicated. Oh, side note, they're all Christian at this point. Um, like there's a pope. That is the religion that these people all practice. So Cheribert was excommunicated for marrying a nun 
just pause to take that in, who was the sister of his other wife, pause to take that in, going to repeat it. So Cherubert, I think the oldest brother, was excommunicated for marrying a nun who was the sister of his other wife. Two issues there. Um, one is that they really were not into um, incest. So, and to them, they considered if you marry a woman and then marry that woman's sister, like that's too close together. You can't, which is wild to me because what happened in European history, like a thousand years later is everyone was marrying their like aunt or whatever. Anyway, so, but also he married a nun and that also was not cool. So because he was excommunicated, he no longer got to keep his kingdom. So that means there's three kingdoms left. Three brothers left um, ruling these kingdoms. So Cherubert's ex-wife, oh wait, sorry. So the nun he married died of the plague, but his other wife, the non-nun, um, she tried to take it over, um, saying like, well, I was his wife and I think I should take it over. But the brothers laughed at her and sent her to a nunnery. Like if you're going to do a bingo sheet, just like an, a woman speaking out, getting sent to a nunnery is like the middle square every bingo sheet. So again, they redivided. So the land had been divided when their father died into four. They redivided it into three bits and agreed to jointly control Paris. Um, sure. But um, anyway, so it's basically Cherbert. Oh, wait. And I think Cherbert died of a heart attack. Yeah. So he's excommunicated and then he died of a heart attack. So there's three brothers left anyway. Um... And so the three brothers are just like at war. Sigebert had made this bold statement by marrying Brunhilde. And so Chilperic, in order to compete with Sigebert, decided to marry Brunhilde's sister, Gilswintha. So this is again with the powerful Visigoths kingdom. So, but Gilswintha's father, Athanagild, knew that Chilperic was like this famous playboy, the Leonardo DiCaprio of his era. Um, and so... Gilswintha's dad demanded that Chilperic, like before he would give permission for them to get married, he demanded Chilperic had to swear a solemn oath not to have any concubines or mistresses and to be faithful to Gilswintha. And Chilperic was like, yeah, totally sure, whatever. And I mean, Fredegon is just there like, hmm, we'll see about that. So a second lavish, mar lavish marriage took place. So because the one with Brunhilde and Sigebert was like this amazing marriage. So then there's a second extravagant wedding um, in Rouen, a city which is going to come up a lot as well. Um, Galswintha, so she converted to Roman Catholicism upon her marriage to Chilperic. Um, Chilperic, just for the record, like, yes, I mean, spoiler, he is going to become Fredegan's husband, but he also sucks. Well, I mean, he was, well, okay. Everyone in the story is pretty terrible, kind of equally, but Chilperic was terrible in an additional way in that he was kind of an asshole. Gregory of Tours described him as the Nero and Herod of our time. So he's just like a hedonistic sort of guy. And Fredegund is just there being like, um, figuring out what she's going to do. So the marriage between Chilperic and Gilswintha began happily, um, Gregory of Tours says, he loved her very dearly, for she had brought a great dowry with her. 
I would contest that that means the marriage began happily. I think that just is more like he was happy to get the money. As time went by, um, basically Chilperi couldn't quit Fredegund and Fredegund would not let him forget about her. Um, and so they kept sleeping together. And she, like to the point that Gilswintha kept finding the two of them in bed with each other. To the point that Gilswintha begged Chilperic to return her dowry so she could just return home to her dad and, like, dissolve this marriage. But Chilperic was not into that idea. And then Brunhilde and Gilswintha's father died, which led to an election among the Visigoths because, to them, king was an elected job. Again, just no one's doing, like, a the inheritance thing that so many other people did. But this also meant that the two sisters were now without their father's protection as king. And so it was. About a year after the wedding, Galswintha was found strangled in her bed by Chilperic himself. So I don't even want to pretend this is a whodunit. Like, pretty obviously, Chilperic and Orfredegund murdered her. Um, why do I say that? Not just because, like, that makes sense, but because Chilperic didn't investigate at all he just like went into his bedroom he's like oh no my wife is dead mm, that's okay so it seems notable like he didn't even question the guard posted outside of the room that night um he's just kind of like well so she's dead that's convenient i guess i'll just marry fredigand three days later which is in fact what he did he married fredigand three days after he discovered his wife's strangled body and or strangled her and gregor of tours says king chilperic wept for the death of Galswinth. Both in a few days, he asked Fredigan to sleep with him again. So I wrote this down here, just so we all know. Um, Fredigan read and wrote in the Frankish language, which is sort of like a proto-German language. Um, Proto-French language? Anyway, but she also learned Latin. And she read a lot. And that's notable because with her book learning, that's how she figured out a lot of her schemes. And I think that's how she figured out that she could dream bigger for herself. Fredigan is married to Chilperic, which means she's now sister-in-laws with Brunhilde. So the sophisticated princess Brunhilde and the former palace servant Fredigan were now sisters-in-law in positions of power. Because remember, as long as you're married, you've got some power. But here's the thing. Brunhilde and Gilswintha were sisters. And Fredigan, even if she didn't personally strangle Gilswintha, was like pretty um, clearly involved in that situation. And so Brunhilde was now set on avenging her murdered sister by destroying Chilperic. And here's the thing. Brunhilde is also ferocious and amazing in the story. But because it came across this story from the Fredigan point of view, I'm team Fred for life. But Brunhilde is... This rivalry just made both of them even better, basically. So um, Brunhilde's husband, Sigebert was totally on board with his plan to destroy Chilperic because he just wanted to take over Chilperic's lands because that was the whole deal. Their other surviving brother, Guntram, helped out because he also just thought Chilperic sucked and wanted to take over his lands. So the two brothers and Brunhilde, I think, put Chilperic on trial for the murder of Gelswintha, but <laughs> Chilperic, in kind of a baller move, never showed up to testify, and so he's found guilty in absentia. So the brothers are like, well, he's guilty in the court we just convened where he couldn't defend himself. And so the two brothers, Sigebert and Guntram, set about invading Chilperic's kingdom to usurp his land and take over. 
which they did. They were successful. So by the year 575, seven years after Gilswentha's murder, so basically this was all happening. So there's the trial, they take over, and Fredegan and Chilperic are just kind of like, just war, war, war. Fredegan had two kids with Chilperic in this time. Um, a daughter named Rigunth, who we are going to hear about later, and a son called Claudebert. So, but this is kind of like, okay, whatever, because Chilperic had a bunch of other sons from his previous wives and mistresses, and there wasn't primogeniture, so just kind of his various sons would all, were all understood to inherit things. Because remember Otto Vera, the wife he sent off to the convent, she had had three sons, and they were, so he had like adult sons as well. So Fredegan had these two kids, her son being Claudebert. So it wasn't like Claudebert was going to rule. So it was kind of like bonus kid. But then the older sons all started dying in the war of Chilperic versus his brothers. And then Fredegan became pregnant again. So at this point, it's like Elizabeth Woodville vibes. She's pregnant with two young children um, in hiding. I want to say a bunker, but I don't know if bunkers were invented yet, but that sort of place. So she's just in hiding, I don't know, tunnels under a castle with her kids, very pregnant, while Chilperic fought battles with, alongside his two remaining adult sons. But things are going amazing for the other two brothers. Uh, they were seizing tons of land, including Paris, which remember the brothers were supposed to share Paris. But anyway, so Sigebert and Brunhilde, they seized Paris. And so they marched triumphantly into Paris with their three young children and took over the palace. At around the same time, Brunhilde appointed Gregory, the Bishop of Tours. So this is a Gregory who's writing from which we learn a lot of these details so you can see how he maybe has a pro Brunhilde slant in that she is the one who appointed him bishop but he also puts in a lot of we know a lot of stuff about him from the weather about things that happen and he puts kind of his opinion to spin it to make Brunhilde sound good and Fred sound bad but like anyway so the, those two are friends so as Brunhilde became queen of Paris in a palace, Fredegund and her young kids and pregnant self were hiding out in a bunker. And then while there, she had another baby, which was another son called Samson, which is an interesting biblical name. It makes sense because it's in the Bible. Samson had the long hair and then they cut off the hair and he lost his power. So the Franks liked the long hair, but also just the fact that everyone's called like Fredegund and Chilperic. And then they called their son Samson is interesting. And I think speaks to how Fredegund really liked reading and information and learning about other cultures. So while she's still in the bunker, like 10 seconds postpartum, she summoned two uh, servants slash enslaved boys to her and ordered them to sneak into the victory celebration to assassinate Sigebert. So this was a suicide mission because there's no way that these two little servant boys would be able to escape after doing that but also like how the fuck was this gonna ever work like why did she think that these two would be able to get away with this and i love that she's just like short-circuiting the whole thing like the brothers have been at war for however many years and she's just like gives birth and then like the next second is like here's what we're gonna do we're gonna just assassinate sigabert and get on with this because this is all going way too long and that's one of the things i appreciate about i appreciate about fred again is she's just like efficient so all the frankish people kind of carried this sort of knife around with them those sort of like a multi-purpose like hunting knife like it wasn't a super 
it wasn't seen as a deadly weapon. It was just like a thing to like cut open apples with or like whatever. Like everyone just had this knife with them. So she gave each of the boys one of these knives. So it was not, think of it like a steak knife. Um, Like it's not really deadly unless you were really close to somebody with it. Because she knew that the boys would be searched going into Sigurbert's camp, but they wouldn't, like these knives wouldn't be confiscated because it's just like everyone carries one of these knives around. And then she invented and or brought into her era something from the book she'd read about the Romans, which is poison knives. So nobody had really done this in this way in the Frankish era. So nobody expected this to happen because so just the way that poisons were at this time, like people knew that there were poison things you could eat, um, but also the poisons, they weren't like shelf stable. People weren't like carrying poisons around with them. So, but she was, I don't know, like she was just good with chemistry apparently. So she gave the boys a vial of poison, potentially like snake venom or something like at this so she might have gotten this idea from reading ideas from antiquity or maybe just from how she saw that when people went hunting, sometimes people would poison arrows, but usually those were just poisons to create infected wounds, which didn't kill immediately. She was, in fact, a pioneer of poison assassinating, assassinations. So she gave the boys a boil of some sort of poison, snake venom, not sure, um, but also something that the poison that they got was something that would lose its potency quickly. So she instructed them not to put it on the knife until they were in the enemy camp because they can, it had to like be still poison at the time they did the stabbing. Guess what? The boys were successful. Um, they showed up at the camp and they claimed to be, Hey, we were from Jill Perrick, but we're, we've changed our mind and we want to be on Sigurd's side now. And so they were allowed in and because they looked so um, non-threatening, that the bodyguards didn't even stop them when they went running up to Sigebert and then they just stabbed him on both sides with poison knives and he died. So Sigebert now dead um, and Chilperic, Fredegan's husband, set to work taking over Sigebert's lands. Rumors circulated, probably from Gregory of Tours and other men who just didn't like how Fredegan was like, starting to make it apparent that she was, like, smarter than anybody. So rumors began to spread that Fredegund was a witch. Um, And this was a serious offense. It was, like, an actual crime. You could be fined for being a witch. Um, Fredegund never defended herself against these claims, which is also interesting. And potentially that's because Fredegund just preferred to be feared. There's other claims people make against her that she does defend herself against. Um... But it seems like she was cool being thought of as a witch because I guess, I don't know, she's into it and good for her. So meanwhile, back in Paris, the now widowed Brunhilde was just staying put because like she wasn't sure what her best move was. Like her husband was dead, but she had children, she had sons. Um, so her five-year-old son was Childebert, not to be mistaken for Chilperic, Fredegan's husband, Childebert. So anyway, Childebert was smuggled out in a cart of vegetables by Brunhilde because presumably she would think like, oh, someone's going to try to kill him because to get rid of, you know, the heir. But she got him smuggled out. I think 
Yeah, and then she also smuggled out her daughters, but she stayed put. Why did she stay there on her own? Maybe to protect her treasure. Because remember when she was married, she brought this dowry with her. And she brought her treasure there with her. Maybe she stayed there to provide a distraction to allow her children to safely escape. So the girls were caught by Chilperic's men and brought back. But Child DeBert escaped in his like vegetables cart. Brunhilde was sent to a convent, but kept alive. Um, alive, but apart from her daughters. She was kept cloistered which meant she couldn't leave the convent or meet anyone new and could only interact with other people in the convent. So her son was Childebert, was the king of her kingdom, which was called Austrasia. But, I mean, he was five, and it seems like the other brothers could maybe move in and take over his land. She needed a new powerful husband to return herself and therefore her son to power, but where in this cloistered convent could she find a man? Well, so remember Chilperic's first wife, Ottovira, the one who Fredegund was a servant of and then convinced Chilperic to divorce her. Remember, Ottovira was sent to a convent. She was staying at this same convent where Brunhilde was. And so Ottovira really hated Fredegund because Fredegund like, had her removed as queen and sent to a convent and then Fredegund married her husband. Brunhilde still hated Fredegund because Fredegund was basically responsible for the murder of Brunhilde's sister, Gilswintha. So they just started a We Hate Fredegund club in the convent. And the bishop of the city where they were staying was called Praetaxtatus. It's a name that every time I see it has like at least two more syllables than I expected to have. But he's going to do a lot of stuff, so I need to get used to saying it, I guess. Praetaxtatus. He was the godfather of Ottovira's oldest son, Merovich. So, Merovich was an important general to his father, Chilperic, but he, his father ordered him to go and invade and conquer this one place, but instead he headed to the convent to liaise with his mother and his aunt by marriage, Brunhilde. Somehow, messages had gone through to him, because Ottovira had at this point been at the convent for quite a while, so I think she would have figured out who who to trust and how to get messages out there, even though they're supposed to be all hidden away. So next thing you know, Brunhilde was married to Merovich. So just to the family tree of this all. So Merovich is Fredegund's stepson. Merovich is the son of Chilperic and Ottovira. And now he's married to Brunhilde. So this was a wedding slash act of war, and you love to see it. Oh, and the officiant was Merovech's godfather, Bishop Praetextatus. So this is all happening in the city of Rouen. And they declared Merovech their king. So suddenly this is like another challenger in the whole situation between the brothers and who owns which kingdom. So like the city of Rouen all joined Team Brunhilde. And so they are now very anti-Fredegund, anti-Chilperic, basically because Brunhilde had brought all her treasure with her, and Praetax Tetis was paying off all the influencers to join their team. Merovech sent an assassin to kill Chilperic, but that did not work because he was not as good at getting assassins as Fredegund was. So Chilperic and his forces sieged Rouen, um, and the best course of action, because Brunhilde and Merovech had gotten married 
who knows you know what no they never met each other it was not a love match like they got married because this was beneficial for both of them in terms of like seizing more land but they figured the best way to avoid being executed was to portray the marriage as a love match um because Chilperic had the love match with Fredegund, you know, where he's like, you know, I don't care what you say. I'm going to marry my servant who's also a murderer. So they kind of went out. They just like appeared amid the siege and they're like, we're in love. And so they came out to distract while they were talking to him. Their army snuck off to seize his kingdom, but their siege did not work. And Chilperic connected the dots to see that Brunhilde and Merovech were behind this uprising against him. So he tried to get the marriage annulled because Brunhilde was technically Merovech's aunt. Uh, the two of them were kept apart so they didn't conceive a child. You know, hashtag Catherine Gray. To be extra sure that Merovech would be powerless, Merovech, Chilperic had Merovech's hair all cut off. And not just, and remember, the hair was so important to them. And it wasn't just cut off. They also had his, the top of his hair all shade off. So like a friar tuck moment, like a Captain Picard type hairstyle. So in a place where like really long hair was beautiful and that was your power, they just like gave him this unconsensual haircut and forced him to become a priest. And this now meant, so if Merovich had sex with Brunhilde, it would be illegal due to his priest vows. And if Brunhilde had children from this, the children would be like sacrilegious and unable to rule. Brunhilde was then given a choice, her husband or her children. She chose her children, so she left, returning to Austrasia and her five-year-old son, who is the king, um, but she did leave behind her treasure so that Praetax Tetus could continue funding her secret anti-Chilperic rebellion. Anyway, Merovech escaped, started growing back his hair, and kept trying to bring down Chilperic. So this is like, we're getting into Brunhilde, but this is just giving you context of what Fredegund is going to be up to next. So Brunhilde's son, Childebert, king of Austrasia, had also been named the heir to Guntram. I haven't mentioned his name in a minute. So that's the other brother. So Guntram did not have any heirs. They had, I forget, they'd all died or something. And he was very, very, very religious and would never marry again. So she, he had made an alliance with Brunhilde such that Childebert would be his heir now too. So when Guntram died, Childebert would become the king of Austrasia as well as Guntram's kingdom. So Brunhilde was kind of like, hmm. She had to decide, like, does she want to back Merovech? So Merovech, like, again, he's out growing his hair out, like, moving against Chilperic. But Brunhilde's like, ooh, but, like, me teaming up with Guntram is maybe better because my son, like, that's going to be better. Anyway, so that's happening. And then what happened next is that Fredegund is just like, okay, what is happening with this anti-Chilperic rebellion? Like, who is funding this? And so she went to her spy network, which she has a spy network by now. And like, of course she does. She learned that Praetax Tatus had been paying people off to move against her husband. So she had Praetax Tatus arrested and put on trial. Fredegan bribed the bishops to convince him to confess. So, like, she bribed the bishops so the bishops would be like, hey, Praetax Tetus, you should confess. That'll be a good idea. And then Praetax Tetus was like, okay, I trust you, the bishops. So he confessed, and then he was found guilty and was forced into exile. But don't forget his name. How could you possibly? 
pre-tax tetis is going to return again. So, um, Fredigan's team was now moving in on Maravich. Uh, and it just seemed kind of like, now that Fredigan was against him, like, he knew that this was it. Like, his father had figured out about the rebellion and stuff. Knowing he'd surely soon be captured, and knowing the gruesome punishment that rebellious sons got, Maravich had got one of his assistant one of his servants to assisted suicide kill him. So he's R.I.P. Maravich. Brunhilde now kind of a widow again, except was that really a marriage? In five seventy seven, Fredegan's young son, Samson, died of dysentery, uh, which is a thing that just happened a lot in specifically in this era it was a time of like a lot of rain and a lot of flooding which got the poo water everywhere still have dysentery so but if you're keeping track which frankly congratulations if you are i need to keep re-inventorying who's alive and who's dead samson is now dead this leaves chilperic with only two heirs oh because Maravich also just died as well right so Fredigan's other son, Clodebert, and then Otto Vera's adult son, Clovis. Um, Fredigan had another son. The son was called Dagobert. His birth was celebrated with literal circuses. Um, Fredigan and Chilperic moved into Paris. It's just like people just keep taking over Paris, being like, now we're in charge of Paris. And then someone else takes over like, mm, you thought. So so now there's three three heirs of Chilperic. Clodebert. Clovis, and now Dagobert. In 580, there was flooding from constant rain. Again, this is some of the stuff, the scintillating weather detail we get from Gregory of Tours, leading to a truly horrific new dysentery epidemic. And rumors began to spread that Fredegund was having an affair with the Bishop of Bordeaux, whose name was Bertram. This meant rumors that Fredegund's sons were maybe illegitimate, which would get in the way of them inheriting and becoming the new kings, and she could not have that for her kids. So this is, remember, when people said she was a witch, she's like, I'll allow it. But now she, when people were, like, challenging that her sons were illegitimate, she's just like, hell no. So she had... The rumors were largely coming from Gregory of Tours, her main biographer. So she had him put on trial. Um, Bertram, her alleged lover, got to cross-examine him. Gregory was found innocent of spreading rumors. But dysentery was still going on. Um, Chilperic came down with a bad case of dysentery. And then baby Dagobert did too. And then also slightly older child Clodebert also did. So just like everyone around her is like just getting dysentery. And people didn't know then that it's about like the cleanliness of water and where you're pooing. So um, Fredigan deduced. She tried to figure out what was up. And she was like, here's what I figured out from my book learning. Um, she figured out that the issue was this was God's punishment because she and Chilperic had um, raised the taxes too much. And then they had also ruthlessly killed people who protested against the tax hike. There's a lot of casual murder in this story. So, she, And frankly, if she's like, she was like, mm, God is punishing me, but for what? And she's like, taxes slash killing tax protesters. So... This is kind of cool of her. She burned the tax registers and wiped out all tax debt in one afternoon. Hell yeah. But um, that wasn't it. That obviously doesn't cure 
a plague of dysentery. Dagobert, the youngest son, died. Um, Clodebert, the other son, was gravely ill, and they prayed day and night for his recovery, but then he also died. So the only remaining heir to Chilperic right now is Clovis, who is his son with Otto Vera. So Fredegund, in her grief, or just because this is her way, she sneakily tried to have Clovis also die, and she did that by sending him to unbattle to a place where the dysentery was really bad, hoping he would like get it and die. But he survived. So by now Fredegund is maybe like 30 years old, Chilperic maybe 40. Their only remaining child was their daughter Rigunth, and just for bullshit reasons, daughters couldn't inherit anything, like they needed a son. Oh, and Clovis, increasing threat because he's like the only heir to Chilperic. But then Clovis took up romantically with a servant girl and Fred again was just like "Ooh, I know servant girls are like actually the most dangerous people there are because I was one myself so she spread rumors that this girl whose name I don't know I don't think Fred again spread rumors that this girl and the girl's mother who's also a servant I guess were both witches and in fact she alleged that they were responsible for the deaths of her sons Dagobert and Samson so Fredegan ordered the girl to be disfigured and beaten, her long hair cut off, and tied to a stake, and presumably burned. Uh, the mother was tortured until she confessed to being a witch. Chilperic allowed Fredegan to decide the fate of Clovis, his son, and she decided he would be sent to a faraway castle, where he apparently stabbed himself to death, despite being alone in a room with his hands tied behind his back. Which I think means... Fredegan had him killed. So she also sent servants to the convent in Rouen to assassinate Otto Vera, who had by now outlived all three of her sons. Otto Vera's daughter was there in the convent with her. Her name was Bessina, and she was um, either raped or reported to be raped, either of which ruined her reputation so she wouldn't be a valuable bride to marry off anywhere. Not sure if Fredegund ordered that step as well, but she basically was just, she had no children, so she was doing everything she could to just destroy anyone else who potentially could ever have a claim to the kingdom. So then the servant girl's mother recanted her confession to being a witch because she only confessed it because she was being tortured. But even though she recanted, she was still executed by being set on fire and then so Chilperic had literally no heirs um, Brunhilde's son Childebert was still the boy king he is by now 11 the 11 year old boy king of Austrasia and so Chilperic decided because he needed an heir at this point he's going to do what Guntram had also done so Chilperic symbolically adopted Childebert as his heir too so weirdly, this seems like it might be sort of causing peace if Childebert is now the heir to all three kingdoms. Potentially, he could then become the king of all of them. So these two were aligned. Meanwhile, in the Byzantine Empire, basically, the Byzantine Empire wanted access to Italy through some mountains controlled by the other brother, 
Guntram, but Guntram didn't want to ally with them, and then they got impatient. And they had this alliance with Gundivald. So Gundivald, I don't... Have I mentioned him before? So you see why this is going to be a two-part episode. There's just like... I think we all need a week to like think it over. Gundivald is the youngest half-brother of all the brothers. So there was the brothers. Remember their father. There's four of them. They each got a kingdom. Gundivald is like the fifth brother who did not get a kingdom. So he had pieced out to, um, well, actually, because they didn't want him to do anything, they had cut off all his hair way back earlier in the story. I just didn't say that part. And he ran off and he allied himself with the Byzantine Empire. So Gundivald was an appealing, so they, the Byzantine Empire was like, what if we make Gundivald the new heir to everything? Because he's, you know, working with us. He was an appealing heir to the Frankish people because he was an adult person. Um, he was also a widower with two children. So that kind of set up like some good succession. Like there's not going to be all this like who will be the heir stuff going on. Gundevald could offer a stable succession. And since the Frankish people in general, um, they weren't super fans of the whole Chilperic Fredegund situation. They also weren't big fans of Guntram. And they also weren't fans of Brunhilde and Sun, so I'm just like, the Frankish people being so picky. The thing is, Gundevald was like young and hot and maybe popular enough that he could maybe take over all three kingdoms. But Fredegund got pregnant again. She was by now in her 30s, still fertile, whatever, 30, flirty, and thriving. And this was another son, and they called this boy Theoderic. So this is where we're going to end part one, basically. So here's what the situation is. So we have Gundevald is teamed up with the Byzantines Empire to um, maybe challenge everybody. We have Guntram, getting old, made vows to effectively be a priest, so he'll never have another heir. He's named as his heir, Brunhilde's son, Childebert. Um, Chilperic doesn't have an heir. So he symbolically adopted Childebert just so there would be somebody. But then Fredegund had one more son, Theoderic. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. I Frankly, I feel like that's as much as I can even process in my brain. The next part is going to be like, I mean, just for some teasers, um, we've got headings like Frederick's, Fredegund's Black Widow Era. Um, what do we call it? There's a section that I call like Queen VS Queen. Um, the Rigunth of it all. Um, Fredegund's Warrior Queen era. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot to get into, and we'll get into that next time. So, it feels funny to not be scoring her, but like, Honestly, if we scored her at this point, if she died now, I would just be like 10 out of 10 in every category. But we're going to get into a lot more scandalousness, a lot more scheminess, significance, um, and the ongoing sexism of it all. So this is the Vulgar History Podcast. My name is Anne Foster. So nice to be talking to you all again. Um, there's all the usual things. They're all in the show notes. So on... I have a little page on bookshop.org. 
if you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history there's a list of all the books that i have used as a reference for all the seasons including a link to pre-order the book that we've been the fredegund book which is called again um the dark queens the bloody rivalry that forged the medieval world by shelly puhak so when you buy through bookshop.org that helps um support independent bookstores there's also the vulgar history merch store at teespring.com the link to that is in the show notes um there's some real cute tits out merchandise literally just things that say tits out um if you want to support the podcast patreon.com slash ann foster writer and then keep up with us on instagram vulgar history pod on twitter at vulgar history and i'm excited to bring you part two because there's gonna be some wild occurrences um but i hope that this wasn't too confusing all the people with all the names that all start with ch anyway mask on tits out talk to you all next time Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.